So I talk about it like a Venn diagram. Mm. There's a circle of things that you are really good at. And there's a circle of things that you really love to do. And the place in the middle where they overlap, that's your dharma. That's your calling. This episode of The Work Ethic is brought to you by Wellbolt Bikes. Wellbolt Bikes is a social enterprise working to make affordable, reliable transportation available to everybody. They're doing this by gathering bikes that might otherwise go wasted or taking bikes in as donations, old bikes that might be laying around your garage, which by the way, you can donate to this enterprise by dropping them off at any time that they're open. But they gather these bikes, they rebuild them, uh, making them available for sale, refurbished bikes for sale at really affordable prices, great bikes, super accessible. And they do this so they can take the sales revenue and invest it into an earn-a-bike program so that those with little to no money can also get a bike through a small investment of community service hours, a bit of sweat equity work that they put in to earn their bike. And at the end of this program, they get a bike, lights, lock, helmet, water bottle, really Uh, and a safety training. So everything that they need to be commuters, to get around town, to have access to the rest of the city, its opportunities, its economy, uh, a a really great program. They also offer a full service repair shop on sliding scale so that it's available and accessible to everybody. They invite everybody, whether you earned a bike or bought a bike, or you're just a neighbor that already has a bike and likes to go riding to ride with them every Tuesday night. There's a group ride at 630 that you're all invited to. If you're in Tampa, Florida, their shop is located in University Mall right next to USF in the uptown university area. Go check them out. It's at Wellbuilt Bikes on any social platform or bikeshoptampa.com if you want to find their website. Hard work, work. Hard work. That's what they say. Hard work, work. Hard work. I earn my pay. Hard work, work. Hard work. Do it every day. Well, welcome once again to another Work Ethic Podcast, and I am super excited excited about today and this episode. So I'm finally getting to catch up with my old friend, Melanie. Uh, so on the show today is Dr. Melanie Hicks, and I, I tell you what, this, rather than giving like, oh, here's some highlight things from your LinkedIn, this and that, I'm going to let you fill all that in, but I want to tell a quick story uh, that is kind of how this came to be. So her and I, we've known each other for a while and we'll probably talk about how a little bit, but the other day I got a package delivered and I, in, incidentally, um, and you may or may not know this, but I had recently been ordering some wine bottles. So like trying to get some, some different bottles of wine. And then this box shows up and I, I was like, Oh, some wine showed up. I ordered this. Right. So I drive it home. And I open it and there is a card in there for Melanie and it's the sweetest card. And just like, thanks for all you do. And like out of nowhere, right? No, no explanation really. Just like uh, uh, you sent this box of wine to the house. And so, and by the way, so it's a little early, but in, in honor of our conversation, I went and grabbed one of those bottles here and I haven't tried this one yet. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sip on this while we, uh, while we chat. And awesome. I wish you were, wish you were here to share it, but I know you're a little earlier where you are, so maybe <laughs> too, too too early where you are. But I t- uh, so so this box shows up, and of course I I message her and I'm hey thanks for that. Uh, I've and and as I read the cards in this thing, and I really I want you to tell more about this kind of as we get into it, but I just thought this was too cool. So I'm reading through it, and I'm like, wait, this is like a a wine subscription company, as far as I understand. That seems like they're 
trying to leverage like kind of goes direct to consumer to kind of take out some of the middleman margins and go, okay, that gives us some capital to work with, to kind of invest in some of these programs around the world. It kind of a, I was like, is this like a social enterprise wine company? This is, I've never heard of anything like this. Right. So I'm super excited about it. And I've tried a couple of the wines I've been, I've been, I've been like, these are good. Um, I have not tried this. So today I've got this uh, luminous um, cab. It's a 2017 cab, which is from Mendoza, Argentina, which I was like, wait, that's not a Malbec. No, that's a cab. Okay, cool. Which I'm going to try. I'm excited to try. Uh, so I messaged her back and I was like, how'd you hear about this? Do you know these folks? And of course, and you can, you can fill in the details here, but she's like, yeah, I'm basically working with uh, some education components of the humanity uh, Del Sol, is that right? Who they're investing okay. mm-hmm. they're or investing in their work in the nonprofit side, Del Sol. Oh, and then by the way, I'm also working with the wine company as, what did you say, COO or something? Oh. And I and I was just like, of course you are. So <laughs> for those that are listening, I'm so excited for you to meet Melanie. Um, she's, an, she's just an incredible uh, friend, I- inspiration, and all around, like this is no shock, right? Where I'm like, oh yeah, she's a hustler. <laughs> She's always been super a- after it and I haven't caught up with her in a while. So I'm excited to catch up, but I thought that story uh, really is how we ended up talking today. So I was like, Oh, you know what? We need to catch up anyway. Uh, I'm glad you, thank you for that box. I'm, I'm enjoying it, loving it. And, uh, and so I'm going to shut up and I'm going to pour a glass of wine and I want you to share, <laughs> catch me up on what's going on with you, but also introduce yourself to everyone kind of in, in more, in more detail. Who, who, who sure. are you? Yeah. Sure. So um, as John said, my name is Melanie Hicks. I am kind of two decades of passionate executive in the education, nonprofit and social enterprise space. So I've had a really blessed uh, career to work with some great folks in education. I started out in politics and education advocacy. Um, I moved on to a campus where I got to work Um, with not only campus folks, but also with a lot of startups through our, um, the University of Tampa had a Loth Entrepreneurship Center where I got to engage with a lot of startups. And along the way, around 2009, when I was still living in Tallahassee, um, Florida, where I was doing advocacy work, I started a a nonprofit. Really, um, it fell on top of me. I um, was asked to help nonprofits talk to the legislature. How do we get our volunteers trained to talk to the legislature? And so I started doing that um, just as a favor to different friends and eventually made it into its own nonprofit. Why, why real quick to interrupt, why were you asked to do that? Like why you, cause this is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I was working in, um, in advocacy. I was in front of governors and legislature giving presentations and doing a lot of volunteer work on the Mm. side, not in advocacy, just with nonprofits. And my father was a member of um, the Crime Stoppers of Florida. Um, And he called me one day and said, I I think our volunteers need help. I think we're writing these letters. I want to make sure they have the right tone. They have the right feel. And would you come down here and, you know, maybe work with our board and talk to them? They were, I was in Tallahassee, they were in Orlando. I drove down I ended up doing a giant presentation for their conference where I talked about uh, legislative, you know, advocacy and just how to engage in a positive way and how to 
have these conversations where you get stuff done if you don't have an existing relationship, but you also do it in a really positive way and not to always go in like in protest mode. Like sometimes mm-hmm. you want to go in with the gratitude mode and say, yes, help us, let us help you understand the issues that we're facing on a deeper level. And, but we, we know that your job is tough and we thank you for that. And so kind of teaching from teaching advocacy from a place of gratitude was how that all got started. So yeah, so fast forward, I, I ended up in Tallahassee. I mean, in Tampa, Florida, I worked um, with the University of Tampa. I got to interact with some great um, nonprofits and I, I really got hooked on social enterprise and the restrictions around the nonprofit sector that really hold down their market share um, and how social enterprise is a way for them to diversify their funding structure to bust out of these kind of the, the nasty word overhead around nonprofits and and have this like really positive impact business for good that also is really strongly core missioned in some sort of purpose-driven um, life. And that's um, how we first interacted with WellBuilt when you were first launching yep. uh, Built Bikes. And I got to learn about the well and all the work you had done up to that point and then how to launch that. And I worked with a number of other um, social enterprises and nonprofits in the Tampa Bay region. Uh, so really, really fun existence. I live out in Colorado now. I, I followed the mountains out here a little bit and um, I'm starting to engage with, with different um, organizations you know, the pandemic as terrible as it is, has also opened up our eyes to the power of virtual and to that you don't have to be in the same town to, to really do good work together as a partnership and as a collaboration. And so, um, yeah, but through one of my Tampa contacts is how I ended up with the wine company. So I can, I'll just roll my story. Do do it. I love it. Yeah. I can't (laughs) wait to hear about it. So, um, Alan Clary, who has, is a, a great friend and a, a, really phenomenal entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur in the Tampa Bay area. Um, one of the founders of the Tampa Bay Wave. Um, he runs a podcast. He wrote a book called Plan Your Start and he runs a podcast. And I was just listening in on the podcast one day and he had um, this wonderful woman, Maria, as his guest. And as I was listening, she was just speaking my language, talking about social enterprise, talking about the, the restrictions on the nonprofit sector. She had been running Humanity Del Sol for about seven or eight years and really felt the effects of trying to do an international nonprofit um, in America, but also from America, but also just in general, the nonprofit sector and how it can be very restrictive um, if you don't, if you aren't sort of part of the club, right? If you're trying to start something that is a little bit different and out of the box. And Mendoza is where the um, the organizations that Humanity Del Sol works with. She, we work with, um, uh, orphans and foster kids who have aged out of the system. And in Mendoza, in Argentina in general, there's not a lot of resources for them. They're not really prepared to go to university. Um, they don't, there's not a lot of resources. They're, they're literally just sort of like, here, you're done, go out into the world. And so there's a big gap in, in how you get them ready for real life and for a productive, a productive citizenship, a positive environment and not get trapped into cycles of, of kind of abusive relationships or homelessness or um, you know, any of the other, uh, sex trafficking, all these things that can happen to, to vulnerable, um, women particularly. And so they're working with the ministry of education in Argentina to, uh, build specific programs and pathways for these, um, these young folks, these, um, youth to, to transition into the real world through some specialized training, life skills, 
And one of the areas, Mendoza is really famous for being an, an area of wineries um, and really delicious yeah. wines. And so um, somewhere along the way, Maria, who came out of the um, the industry really before starting her nonprofit, she came out of the service industry, connected the dots and really um, started thinking about how can we leverage my relationships with wineries and with the beverage industry into something that can be a social enterprise and raise money for this really deep-seated passion that we have for these, these youth in Argentina. Um, and so she really connected those dots. And so I was listening to her story. I was passionate about it. And I, I, I did the chat and said, we've got to talk. And we set up a meeting to talk. And the rest is kind of history. And I've been working with them for about eight months. Um, both on the curriculum side to, as we're developing these training um, and working on, you know, not reinventing the wheel in the, in the curriculum side, but, but connecting what's available and then what needs to be created. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the wine side, run, helping run their operations and get, get their sales um, force up and running. Um, we have a great international team. We have um, someone from the UK, someone from the Philippines. Um, Maria's in Canada. I'm here in America. So we have a great um, team that's really working to flesh out and grow her vision. Um, and, and it's just been my blessing to be involved with it and to do, to add, you know, whatever talents I have in, in business and in philanthropy and um, to that mission and, and help drive it forward. So, yeah, so I did, um, I was excited to kind of introduce more people to it by also saying thank you for yeah. a hard year in a lot of ways. Um, people like yourself, John, and and others, um, some others that it, other people that I work with around the country, to both introduce them to humanity, but also to just say thank you for the little things that you're doing during after a hard year um, mm -hmm. in your community. And of course, Tampa has a big place in my heart, despite despite moving out to the mountains. I still love Tampa, and I miss it. Yep, yep. So we don't have a lot of those around here. Yeah, We're not a lot of mountains here. So how long how long has humanity been? A, a thing how long has it been operational so the the nonprofit's been around for i think just over eight years the wine company just launched this year in 2020 okay so cool. it's been in the works building relationships um curating we have a a, a sommelier who actually curates each of the boxes so mm -hmm. and one interesting piece about the company too that i didn't mention um that's that's really powerful to my heart every um small every wine that is in our boxes comes from a small family owned winery, but each of those family owned wineries also has to have a social mission. So really? they all connect um, back to their own communities, even in small ways, some are larger than others. Um, but each of the partners that we work with have their own social mission as well. So it's really an amplification of impact. Um, that we're really passionate so about. So let, let's put you on the spot then. So this sure. is a luminous, and I noticed several of the bottles as I looked through the website, I took the little quiz thing, as well as the box that came in, Luminous was one of the brands that I saw a good amount of. So can you tell me about Luminous? Um, luminous, is that Zaccardi? What is that? Uh, yeah, so let's see here. This, so this is in Mendoza, Argentina. Um, this is a cap, yeah. Okay. All good. No, I just want, I was curious. Yeah. I was like, tell me about this one. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I will admit if I was Maria, she could tell you every, for sure, every for sure. bottle 
but I am not. You're like, I know the conclusion. The answer is they're doing some stuff. They're doing some stuff. Yeah. So I, I will say we have, we have our, um, a, a monthly podcast. And so I have been inching my way into building these relationships with our various, um, wineries because they come onto the show like I said, once a month, it's in the evenings and we, we interview them. So I've had the chance to meet three or four, but not all of them. So I don't know everyone's story. So are you, are you hosting that podcast? Maria and I host it together. Yes. And if people want to listen to it, where is it? So I, right now, I think it is only on, um, our humanity wine co humanity wine co.com. And I think it's only on our website, um, under events. We, we do Facebook lives and it's a zoom uh call but i don't think we're posting on any of the podcast um apps yet okay all right sweet well that's something to check out for sure to hear some of those stories so um let's yes, and it's interactive so we have um although obviously the recorded version is available we also we invite we advertise and invite people to it and we usually have a small group you know 10 so you're you're doing it. you're streaming them live when you're doing it we're streaming them live. Yeah. And, we're, and we take questions. Um, we have actually a good friend of mine, Brandon Miller from uh, Tampa. He is um, a level one SOM and been in the restaurant industry um, his whole career. So he helps us um, build some really great questions for mm. he's, um He has provided some, some just outside um, looking in, we'll send him the bio of the person and he, he sends us some great questions to ask. So we awesome. grateful to him for some different perspective and it brings you know, a level of, of interaction and, and just asking different things that we don't think about. Right. <laughs> so let's, let's, um, let's park that for a minute. I want to talk about you. Um, wait, you got married this year. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, what, date from COVID, but yeah, let's talk like, can you mind, do you want to share about that experience a little bit? Sure. sure. Yeah. So we were scheduled to get married in April. Mm-hmm. Um, we we lived in Denver at the time we were planning it. Now we moved to Colorado. We moved to Denver. My husband, um, subsequently got a job in Colorado Springs. So we built a house and moved down to Colorado Springs and, um, so we were supposed to get married when we still had a house in Denver, in Denver. So all of our plans were there. Um, small, but larger, like about 50 people probably. Um, completely, obviously postponed pandemic. Everything was shut down here. And then we had this really fortuitous moment in time because we're back shut down in Colorado um, again. Really? Now. But we had this really quick fortuitous piece of time where um, the cases were low and everything opened up for just a little bit. So we jumped on it and we, we held our, our wedding in September. We um, had everyone come to Colorado Springs where we live so we could host at our home. But we took a party bus up to Denver to have mm-hmm. the ceremony and reception in the clock tower where we had planned it. As, as it. intended, right? Yeah. Yeah, as intended. Because uh, clock tower, because timing is everything. We are, we're obviously late in life getting married um, uh, to meet and, and get married. But we're really um, just such a good match. And so it really... Um, it was, it was fun. And, and it ended up being a very intimate, just about 18 of us. No one got COVID. It was great. Good, good. <laughs> you know, we, we all became one little, you know, 16, 18 person family for, for four days. And it was, it was really magical. I tell you what, we had that in common this year. I also got married in yes, June. That's right. We, we did not. So, you know, the heartbreaking, like you plan this reception and this party we were supposed to go to new hampshire with that's where all of her family is and we had this little chapel we'd gone up and done all this planning and then of course covid hits and we're like yeah that ain't happening 
and yeah. um really really hard she you know she's like had a real hard time accepting that reality but it's like there's you know and then the question is do are we are we seriously going to consider waiting or what like what are we gonna like we have a life to move on with right so so we decided like all right like we're just we're gonna get married um and we had a friend that had agreed to marry us so just came to our house and we just did it in the backyard and had we, we had two friends there just because i needed someone to run zoom so that our parents could be there like on zoom mm-hmm. and um and our friend came down to to actually do the ceremony and it was just i think there was four of us we had another friend there to take some pictures while we did it and um and that was it and uh it was it was actually awesome it's funny like oh that's you had to give up all that but like i'm like this is a story we'll be telling for the rest of our lives like this is just incredible and we were able to with most of the things that we had planned especially things we put deposits on like everyone was super cool and understanding like yeah there's a pandemic so if we're good next year we'll credit you guys like so we're hoping to do that reception on our first anniversary to actually go up and see your parents oh, nice. and we're just praying things open up enough that we're actually able to do that. Then I have a buddy that does a bunch of wedding stuff. And he's like, man, my, my 2022 is booked completely yeah. he's like, because people can't, they're not sure they can count on next year. And so they're booking out there. He's like, I'm as busy as could be in two years. Basically. Right. Like, yeah. It's and I think there's, there's a, there's a, positivity about that right like yeah. to see where where we got to a place I think where a lot of people felt I know I was I was just talking to our photographer um who's, who was super awesome and and same with you everyone allowed us to just postpone and said let us know you know we'll just hold everything and when it's there it's there and we were able to 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 do all of those things but I will say that the when I was talking to the photographer there was this sense of like unknown and dread right and that i think has finally lifted even though we're not back right and people aren't making money the way that you know in their professions the way that we want them to there's at least there's a a sincere light at the end of the tunnel that we know that things will come back to normal and people will begin to be um able to to fulfill their professions and and do their thing so i i think that's it there's a sort of a a lifting a little bit of um well and i and talk about you said going to the the legislators and approaching with gratitude. I'm like approaching with gratitude seems like a good idea in every scenario. And honestly, even this last year, I just have a tremendous, there's been a lot of hard things and a lot of pain and a lot of loss for so many, Mm -hmm. but at another, there's so many things to point to, to be grateful for. I mean, one, if nothing else, I look at like how our entire society kind of changed habits and behaviors like that. Cause we decided it was worth doing. And that I'm like, we saw ourselves do that. We can do that for, for, uh, for other reasons, for good reasons. Yes. Um, but even like the advancement of technology connecting with folks, like you're working with folks all over the world. And, and like, I think a lot of us were slow to the slow to take up those habits like to mm-hmm. hang out, hang out with friends over a call like this. And yet yeah. now it's just like a daily reality that, that that's just not going to like back to normal is going to include these things that we've, we've found a lot of treasures in the, in the, in the dragon's lair of this last year or whatever. There's been a lot of things to, to mine, a lot of good to come out and be grateful for. Absolutely. I, and I really do think there's sometimes um, we need, massive disruption and no one would have wished 
for a global pandemic to nope. do that. But right. but we certainly, um, as a society and 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 as like a personal individual, right, need things to disrupt the norm because it, especially. I feel it really personally because as a type A, right, who's, who's a, a hustler, as you put it, mm -hmm. I own that, things can begin to snowball, right? Yeah. And if you don't at some point hit a tree and stop yourself and sit in the snow for a little bit, um, you will just become, you know, more and more and more and more faster and faster and faster and life just kind of passes you by and you're not giving life everything that yeah. it deserves, right? You're not giving yourself and others everything that they deserve from you if you have taken on so much, if you're moving so fast. And so sometimes we just need the, that little bit of disruption to. Yeah. And I mean, on it, it worked out for me timing wise because of a new marriage and a new home. Like we moved into a new place and, and to be like, stay great home. Motivation. Like, perfect. Yeah, no. Right. And like, but to have like a yard and have time to spend in it just mm -hmm. over this last year, I mean, this is so good. It's been yeah. so good. Um, so, I tell you what, let's go way, way back. So I try to, I try to have some questions. I try to ask everyone I talk to. All right. And I'd like to, is that your computer dinging? I you, don't want to make it stop. You don't know how to make it stop. Okay. Well, that's okay. <laughs> I closed the app, but for some reason it. it it's um, still, okay. It's not the end of the world. I'm uh, so sorry. No, 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 no. It's all good. Um, well, okay. So there's some questions I try to ask everybody and some of them have to do with kind of er your earliest memories. So like, I'm curious as, as the word work took on meaning in your life as a little girl, like whatever your earliest memories of what work is could be like images of mom and dad, or the first time you felt like you really had to work or what work meant. Like as that word took shape for you, what are, what are the earliest things you can remember? Gosh. Um, so I think I get my work ethic from my father. Mm. Um, he, both my parents were civil servants. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a police officer. Mm. Um, but he started a side business as early as I can remember, um, of putting in sprinkler systems mm. and it was hard labor. It's, you know, digging trenches and, and, um, literally laying pipe and putting in motors. And, and I just, um, to me, that was, uh, you know, that's what you did. He, his police shift ended at three. He, what was he going to do for four hours until we could have dinner? Right. So it, that's, um, kind of what my childhood was like was you fill your time doing work. And for my mom, um, you know, she was a teacher and in the summers, I think it's where I get kind of my giving, she wanted to go out and do things, um, in the community. Mm. So that was, you know, teachers have summers off and she wanted to, I mean, she also loved to play tennis and, you know, do fun stuff, but, but there was a lot of, um, this, you fill your time with work or service. And so those are, those are really the core, um, I think childhood foundations around what work was. What about uh, your own experience working? So, what do you remember doing that was like, oh, this is work? Oh gosh. Um, I don't know. My first job was at Kmart as a, um, okay. Okay. As a cashier, right? Yeah. Um, and then very soon after that, as soon as I could drive, I uh, was a runner for a law firm. I had really office driven type um, jobs from there on. Uh, it's interesting. 
I've had, this is an interesting question for me because I am writing a book and part of that is a story really about our relationship with work. Uh, so this is a really interesting uh, topic for me. I hadn't really thought about it from that early, um, to be honest. But how we frame, right, um, what is work and what we can expect from it, what we should expect from it, and what we should, what we should listen to others and what we should just listen to our own kind of calling and purpose and values. Um, society will say to go after the, the things that are, you know, the most profitable or that are prestigious or, you know, these kind of things. But, but sometimes our calling is outside of that. And um, you know that better than anyone, I think, um, you know, to say that going the route of just making a lot of money is not necessarily fulfilling for all of us. I mean, some people are perfectly happy in that on that road, but it's not me. And, um, and that's scary to people, you know, that's, it's scary to, to let go once you, particularly once you've obtained a certain level. So I think um, for me, work was always searching. I, I felt like this is kind of what brought on the conversation about the book, how partially how the book started was I felt like I was always chasing something and I never really understood what it was I was chasing. Mm. And as soon as I got to where I thought I wanted, I looked around and said, man, this really isn't it. This is what I thought I wanted and it really isn't it. And so it was a little bit of a self-discovery of, is that a personality flaw in me that I'm just not able to embrace contentment or is it that I'm chasing the wrong things um, mm -hmm. and I'm not really listening to myself and what's true to me. Rather, I'm listening to what society says or my family says or my mentors in business say, you know, and... So I didn't know you were working on this book. Um, and this entire podcast is, is intended to be an exploration of our relationships to work. There you um, go. And I'm super excited to scratch at this a little bit. If you're, if you're willing to share what you're working on um, the, really? the, you said I was searching and chasing after something. And then when I got what I thought I wanted was, was not necessarily that thing. I'm assuming that's something like a well-paying job in like a powerful position or something like that. But like, talk to me about what that was and what it was that you had been chasing versus what maybe you weren't chasing that you could have been or something. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so let me, uh, let me start by saying there is not a single career move I've made that I would take back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because every single thing we do, you know, you, you grow and learn from, I have gotten fabulous, skill sets and I've built my toolbox from all of the things I've experienced. However, there were some very clear signs early in my career about the type of thing that gets me excited every day to do. And at certain points in my career, I've, I've touched on them or touched on them, but I've all, I've managed to weave my life kind of what I call adjacent, right? I'm Dharma adjacent, um, right? alongside where I'm supposed to be, but not quite in the sweet spot because I took the safer route or the higher paying job or the, the more prestigious title um, instead of this is what I wanna be doing every day and who cares about title and who cares about pay as long as you can meet your basic needs, right? Um, and who cares what society thinks about this? If, I'm, if I wake up every day and I'm so excited about it, it's bigger and better and more impactful to the world than anything else that you can do. And so I, um, you know, I wrote my first book at 10 years old. 
Um, I started doing drama when I was three, um, singing and dancing and being on stage. And there's something about writing and speaking that's in my DNA. And yet I've been way too risk averse and way too mm. shy to go all like full board. Um, mm. And so I've done these things. I got into advocacy because I liked presenting to legislatures, right? Like I liked present, I liked the presentation piece of it. I got my PhD because there was a lot of writing there, but it was a very prestigious thing. Yeah. You have a PhD, you do this academic writing and, you know, but it's not, it never really, you know, lit my fire about the type of writing I wanted to do and the type mm. of speaking. It was just the thing that you do. And then, you know, kind of, I went and I did a stint as a nonprofit CEO, which sounded cool on paper, but the truth is the, the things I was doing every day, the organization itself didn't align with my values of what I, what I really, really was passionate about. So I can check the boxes of doing everything successfully that they asked me to do, but I wasn't like breathing and, and talking and getting excited about their cause because it was just, I just took it because it was the next step in my career to be a nonprofit CEO, right? I mm. didn't take it because I was so deeply compelled by their mission that I had to go and run that organization, right? And there's, so there's these like small differences um, where I've had success, but not um, just not perfectly aligned with where I really um, could be giving my best to the world. <laughs> Man, this is so interesting. So, um, well, I'm going to hit, okay. So let me, I'm going to piggyback on something you just said. You're like, I had success, but it wasn't necessarily. Okay. So one of the questions I try to ask everyone, and I'm just going to ask it now instead of later is for you to define success. So like, what is success? Success to me is waking up like, jumping out of bed in the morning. I'm a morning person anyway, so that really mm. resonates. Jumping out of bed, excited about the impact I can make that day. Mm -hmm. And sometimes an impact is very small. It's one person, it's moving one initiative, one baby step forward, but the level of excitement remains constant, mm. right? Yep. I, talk, I talk a little bit, I did a speech recently in Sioux Falls at this um, conference called Purpose Pioneers. And I... I talked about the Sunday night nausea. If you have an inkling of Sunday night nausea mm. about- Like dreading your Monday. Dreading your Monday, dreading oh, your yeah. head. Yeah. It, that, it, then you, you know quit. you're in the wrong place. Quit tomorrow. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. It's in, it is um, the physiological ramification of being misaligned with your purpose, right? And, and you can never do your best work for the world if you're not in line with your purpose. And I talk a little bit about this um, in, in my speech, which is you don't have to just throw out your corporate job and run away to figure that out. You can do mm -hmm. baby steps. My, my um, thing is called becoming congruent. So I feel like I was incongruent to my purpose and, and this is a journey to become congruent. So it's just a baby step, one, one thing at a time until you figure out that congruency, right? You so don't good. have to uproot yeah. your life so well, and if you do you're gonna you're gonna mess a bunch of things up anyway because none of us really know what that is baby steps is how it's gonna end up right. playing out you'll just do a massive first baby step <laughs> right, right, right and it's I, okay i think people people think that it's all or nothing so they're so afraid of the all 
um, that they just give up in and become the nothing. And there's a there's a behavioral therapy. Um, my best friend Lana does um, DBT, which is um, a, a particular type of therapy. And and as one of the mantras of that therapy, they talk about the all or nothing mentality, right? And yep. and I think it's really fascinating because it's okay to get really clear about the long term and just take the baby steps and not feel defeated, but feel confident and and happy and um yeah well i don't i don't know if you've read this i've been really fascinated there's a there's a book out now um but this this guy uh his name is bj fogg and he he teaches a behavior change class um actually i believe some of instagram stuff came out of his class uh like some of the programming stuff around affecting our behavior um but he he has like these algorithms uh related to human behavior so one of them that i just I love is like, so he uses this thing like B equals MAT, which is like a behavior equals uh, motivation plus ability plus a trigger. And, and so, you know, you might be motivated and able to do something, but nothing prompts it. That's a problem, right? Um, you could be motivated to do something and triggered to do it, but you're not able, right? And mm -hmm. so he does this graph thing where basically like, no matter, there are some things like there's this arc that goes and there's some things you're never able to do, right? So no matter how motivated you are, you're not going to jump a building in a single bound like Superman, right? You just can't. And so there's an area of high motivation, but no ability. And so you can't, it won't touch. And then on the other side, there's things that you're totally able to do, but you'll never be motivated to do like stick a knife in your eye. Like you can do that, but you probably won't, right? Like that's not, you're not going to do that. <laughs> right. So, so, but what he, what, and then what he, I remember him, like I listened to several lectures by him, his book out, I believe is called tiny habits or something like that, or three yeah. little habits or something, but it's BJ Fogg. You'll find it. Um, but what he, what he basically does, he said he works with a lot of people. Like he's like, I'll have a very obese man that'll come in and say, I I'm changing my life. I'm super motivated. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And he's like, listen, motivation's fickle. Like it does this, right? Like some days wow. you're motivated, tomorrow you're not, whatever. You can't count on that. Um, and, and, and so you, you, you actually, like, if you get super motivated and you go join the gym and you're, and you're like, I'm going to do this. I, basically, so he, the example I remember him using was like, I'm going to go run a marathon. And he's like, no, you're not. Like, stop, stop saying that. And, he's at, and he's, he actually models, like, you can predict failure buy these ambitions. And, and he's like, so what he would do with this obese man that wants to, he's like super motivated. He's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to institutionalize some account. So one, he's like, use motivation to institutionalize. So like, be like, Hey, uh, personal trainer, come over every Wednesday morning at eight o'clock. Cause, cause then next Wednesday, when I'm not motivated, you come ring my doorbell. I have no choice. Like I'm in. So he's like, cause you won't be motivated later. So institutionalize things. He's like, but one of the things we're going to do is we're going to meet every couple of weeks. So for the next two weeks, here's the, I want you to do three things that we know for sure that you can do. Put on tennis shoes every day, slam a glass of water and take a picture of everything you eat. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? I'm trying to like get in shape. I'm huge. He's like, no, no, no. Scratch all that. Slam a glass of water, put on tennis shoes. And then two weeks go by, he comes back and he's pumped. He's like, Every day I did the three things. I was a complete success at it. And then I had my tennis shoes on. And so one day I went to the end of the driveway and then I went to the end of the block and I ended up walking several miles this week. 
And you know what? Taking a picture of my food is convicting because I have to think about it. And I know you might want to see the pictures. So I had some cheesecake, but I didn't want to show you a picture of that. So I had broccoli. I didn't want broccoli, but I didn't want to show you a picture of cheesecake. So I had broccoli because I wanted to take a picture of that and just yeah. and, and it was like these things that seem absurd and are tiny, but I don't know. I just hear that. And what you're saying, Eve, it's like, you're like, oh, we feel like, you know, we have a hard time going, well, I want this big picture, but I want to make this tiny adjustment. And actually this behavior change analyst goes, that's actually how it works. And all these other things you think you're going to do are going to hurt you. Like yeah. you're going to be demotivated because of your failure, because we all know everyone except your like motivated enthusiasm knows you can't run a marathon anytime soon. Yeah. Right. And so you're going to fail and you're going to go back to the couch and you're going to be a couch potato because that's what your default's going to be when you can't deal with that. And that has been a super, um, I don't know, important and meaningful, like teaching to me. I like think about it a lot as we talk about like, what, you know, I want to change the world. Okay, cool. But like, let's start like what's in your house, in your circle, right. on your block, yeah. like right here. Right. Um, yeah. Does there any thoughts? Cause I know it was just piggybacking on what you were saying. Yeah, actually it's, that's great. I love, I love that analogy so much. I, um, part of what, so during the, the real, you know, really low point during COVID, I, I started to feel, so my job pre-COVID, I was traveling almost every week. And traveling for work can be very daunting and kind of monotonous, but it can also be really fun and interesting. I, I like talking to people on airplanes. I, I like interacting with people face-to-face. -face. And so there was a point during COVID when I started to feel really lonely. Um, and I was waking up, I walk into my office, I feel very blessed in, in the new house that we have. I have a whole room that was a, we turned an entire room into an office. I got to decorate mm. it, it's wonderful. But, <laughs> but you know, I walk from, from there to here and I'm on Zoom calls all day long or phone calls all day long. And then I, I walk back out and we weren't going anywhere and we weren't doing anything. Luckily I live in Colorado, we were hiking some, but I started thinking about what are the small things that could put me in a better mood? And I framed it, um, for this talk recently, I, I put some thought, I did this prior to the talk, but I framed it um, for this talk, which I said, I excavated my attic. I went into my mental attic and I said, what are the things that brought me a lot of joy sometime in my past experience? Hmm. And what of those could I reenact right now? And one of the things, um, I love dancing. I danced from age three to 23. I love dance. So I ordered myself a pair of bright red point shoes um, on Amazon <laughs> I got to, yep. to my house. Yep. And every morning I would put those point shoes on and kind of dance around my living room where no one was around. And so when I sat for that literally 10 minutes, right? Yep. A little longer now, but back then when I first put them on after a lot of years, too many yep. to yep. say, um, I, I would sit at my desk and I felt happier right? Mm. It was one thing from my past. I, I didn't buy point shoes to somehow end up in the American Ballet Company. Right. It was just for me, for mm -hmm. my well-being, for my mental health, for something to, to blast music in my living room, put on a pair of bright red point shoes and dance around. And that is the kind of baby step that, that actually seems disconnected yep. from what I was dealing with at work and, and where I was feeling incongruent. But just lifting your own spirit yeah. 
puts you in a different frame of mind when you sit down to do the same job, to do the same tasks that you had to do, the same 12 hour day of Zoom calls or whatever, right? So there's also a lot to be said for just finding little hacks is Mm -hmm. kind of how I think of them, little life hacks that that bring you joy. Um, And and they end up trans, uh, inspiring you or transpiring into something that you may never know. You can't predict what they're going to end up doing. I, right? I have a I have a small little thing that might fall into the hack thing. I don't deal. I personally don't deal a lot with negative emotion. I don't get super. I'm pretty even keel, right? Like I'm never through the moon excited. I mean, I get excited, but I'm pretty even. Like I'm okay most of the time, but there are days where I'm like you know, I, I don't feel quite like at normal, right? Like I'm a little down for whatever reason. And I will, and I have like a commitment to do whatever it takes to get out of that frame of mind as fast as possible, because I don't know how people live there. I just like, this is a place I can't stay and I'll do anything, anything. Uh, and hopefully that doesn't have to get into, becoming a drug addict or something, but I would understand that too. I'm just like, I'm not staying in this headspace. Well, turns out, uh, these two things work almost every time I just do them back to back and they take 10 seconds. I, I Google pit bull puppies and look at the images of pit bull puppies. And then I send somebody a thank you text, like just who's someone you can thank for something. Um, and then look at a pit bull puppy and I'm back in the game. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm good. (laughs) Yeah. Tell you, life hack. That's amazing. I love that one. I love that life hack so much. And then, you know, for you, it might be like koala babies or whatever. I just love pit bulls and the I'm a golden doodle girl. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, So, okay. So, you use some words here that I really love. And even you said you're calling it becoming congruent. And then you you said another word before, and I wrote it down because I want to circle back to it, Dharma adjacent. I've never heard someone put those words together. I understand. I believe I understand what you're saying. Like, I'm running parallel to that thing. Like, here's where I should be, and I'm nearby, kind of in the same direction, but a little bit off. And yeah. and you, you connected that with, because I chose a slightly safer route. I I... I was hedging my bets a little bit. This one paid better. This one had more prestige. It was like the thing I really wanted to do, but less than, is that right? It's exactly right. Yeah. So I I'm really interested in one uh, unpacking that phrase a little bit. And then, and then also just talking about you were, you kind of basically told a story of being risk averse, hedging your bets and then how that wasn't necessarily I mean, it's a compromise, right? Like here's what I wanted, but I compromised. And Mm -hmm. like the lessons you're, it sounds like you're unpacking are maybe to encourage you not to compromise or maybe to take those risks for your, for that to be congruent, maybe with your, with your Dharma, with that calling on your life or whatever. Um, Some folks aren't going to know what Dharma is and I maybe only have to, why don't you start there and then just unpack this a little bit for us. Sure. So, so Dharma is by definition, and I'm not going to use the Webster version, but it's, it's a version of calling. So every culture, nearly every culture in the world has some word for this. So in Asian cultures, they call it uh, Ikigai or Ikigai. Um, It's God's calling, it's purpose, inner purpose, it's your value, excuse me, your values, it's Dharma. It's basically this idea that there is something so I talk about it like a Venn diagram. 
There's a circle of things that you are really good at. And there's a circle of things that you really love to do. And the place in the middle where they overlap, that's your dharma. That's your calling. Mm. It's things that you're both good at and like over the moon passionate about. That's that's your path. And you've got to figure out how to get yourself into that sweet spot, right? Mm. And mm-hmm. in my world, the adjacent world, right? I tended to go to things I'm good at and just be right outside my little sweet spot, right? Like I'm I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not hating these things and I'm obviously good at them. I'm in the big circle. I'm not quite in the center, right? Mm. And so different cultures define this this kind of path um, differently, but it's it's basically who you're designed to be. Deep yeah. inside, who are you designed to be? What are the things that you've been given in your in your unique set of skills and talents and passions and aspirations and how you align those with with your life choices and your and your vocational cho- choices. And so I'll, Dharma adjacent is an interesting term, which I I thought I was going to, uh, turns out I made it up, but um, I, I read a book called, by Stephen Cope called The Great Work of Your Life. And I read this book three times and it was only on the third reading because again, timing is everything, um, that I really unpacked what I was reading and said, had this light bulb moment that was like, that's me. It's a book about people who both follow their dharma and do not. And a lot of the ones who do not, um, they don't go down some dark path. They're exactly dharma adjacent. So I was convinced that that Mm. word was actually in that book. Um, And then I went to search for the reference to find the page that it was on. And it turns out I had just constructed that word in my head to for me, it was a way to visualize what I was reading yep, yep. In, in his book. So he doesn't actually have the book. I mean, the word Dharma Jason, but he tells these stories. And one of my favorite ones was a pastor. And I'm going to get the name of the, I, I'm not going to remember the name of, of the pastor, but he was pastor in a church. And he was kind of pushed because he was a very good speaker to be a head pastor. So people in the church, in the community were pushing him, pushing him, pushing him to go and be the pastor. Well, his passion was the music. Mm-hmm. And what he really should and wanted to be was a music director, but people said, oh, music director isn't the pinnacle. That's not the top. You're so much better at speaking, not better necessarily, but you're, you're great at speaking. Why wouldn't you go for the top of the top? Why wouldn't you be the leader um, that we want you to be? When really in his heart, he was really unhappy. He dreaded Sundays. He dreaded giving um, his sermon, right? And it's because all he wanted to do was the music. And so when he finally let go of what other people wanted and sort of societal and community and and whatever professional expectations and just embraced being a um, a, a church musician, he he ended up having this amazing career and he got picked up to tour in Europe at all these wonderful churches, um, these ancient churches in, in Europe and like do all these amazing things because that's where his real passion was. So he could funnel all his talent there. Um, and so I talk, that's one of the stories where someone was sort of Dharma adjacent. And so it, those are the stories in the book. They also, he also talks about like Jane Goodall who found her calling in her very early and followed it all the way through with no hesitation, right? Mm. So, so there's like the adjacent and the non-adjacent. And, and, um, and so that's where that came from. I literally, like I said, it was the third reading in this book and I'm, I'm sitting, I, I was sitting on my balcony. Um, I still lived in Tampa at the time and I'm reading and I went, oh, that's me. <laughs> like I'm, I'm Dharma adjacent. Like every yeah. everything I've ever wanted, I've taken just the slightly safer, slightly um, 
you know, off route to, but I've never stopped desiring what is right in, in the center. I, okay. So I'm going to, so I don't go all over the place. I'm going to tell you where I want to go and then deviate slightly. So I want to talk about the safer and risk. There's something there. I want to just keep picking at, but before we do, I want to go to that story. You just told about this pastor because I am with you adjacent. Um, So, (laughs) so uh, I, I feel this story where it's like, okay, I'm good at this. Um, but re- so his passion is to do the music, maybe worship leader, whatever, something in leadership or music, whatever. But he ends up, hey, be the pastor. You got to speak this, that, and the other. Uh, the all of that makes sense, and it totally resonates. And I'm like, yes, 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 yes. But my mind is generating a question mark, and it has to do with something like response. Okay, you described a Venn diagram. It almost seems like perhaps there's another thing in, about the world we live in, right? So, like, you, you get where I'm going because I go, well, well, there is a way in which I highly respect. So, I'm like, I don't think anyone should be doing something they don't want to be doing um, and, and burying their calling yeah. So because mom and dad want me to be a lawyer or something. Like, no, <laughs> screw that. Don't do that. That's a bad idea that's going to kill you inside and probably not be good for the world, you or anyone else or your relationships. However, there's things that people do that they don't want to do because it's good, right, needed, and they can. And this, I think, gets into a lot of the spaces of social responsibility where it's like, yeah, I don't want to be the preacher. Like this story doesn't exactly overlay, but it begs the question of like, yeah, but what about like dutiful responsibility going? I don't want to like, God, I just thinking of all these times with the homeless and conversations I'm in where I'm like, I want to value and love and engage this person. I do. Mm-hmm. I think I'm good at it. I think I'm, I'm made for this, whatever. But like there, there's a million things I'm like, I don't want to do this. Like I'd rather be somewhere else or, or actually the thing that I'm passionate about, I'm getting distracted from because of this, like what, whatever. So like the, the presence of duty and responsibility, something like that. And how does that factor into a question of calling? Um, because there's something there that I feel like, I don't know what that other thing is, but you, you get what I'm asking. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think it comes down to a couple of things. So one is where does the, the sense of obligation, so duty and responsibility, where does that sense of obligation come from? Because I believe that being exactly who we were designed to be will serve the world in the best possible way, mm. right? And not draw you. So, so the sense of obligation comes from somewhere external not from somewhere ah. that's been given to you internal, right? That's yep. Yeah, I mean that's I had an like I've had lots of light bulb moments along this this like becoming congruent journey, but uh, one of them was I'm driving in the car. My parents are visiting here in Colorado. I'm driving in the car. My dad's sitting next to me, and I'm talking to him about wanting to better follow my my calling, right? And I'm talking to him about some different options and um, things I'm thinking about and whatever. And he looks at me and he goes but what if you lose everything? (laughs) And I thought to myself, what is there to lose if I'm 
miserable and I'm doing something that's going to make me happy. Yeah. And so I said to him, I, I thought for a second, I was like kind of shocked by the question. And I looked over him and I said, what is there to lose? And he's like, I don't know, your house or your car. I was like, I'm employable, right? Like I have confidence that I'm employable. I, I can, I'll pay my bills somehow, yeah. right? Like I will go and find some valid piece of work. Um, even if it's a little, you know, um, shoestringy for a while to, you know, pick myself up or whatever. Sure. Like it's not, it's not worth living in a miserable place for years on end. There's a quote somewhere that says, don't, um, live the same year 75 times and call it a life. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's not, it's not life. I want to, I want to be the person exactly who I'm designed to be because the world will benefit most from me in that place. Well, what's beautiful about your response to him. And by the way, your answer to my question was so good. It resonated immediately. Like, yes, if that duty comes from my own value set, which is exactly what the case is, you do what you, because of why you do it, you can, you can endure anything, right? It's for the deeper purpose that drives me that I can do what I don't want to do for a very long amount of time. Actually, it turns out, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and not die doing it because at some level it's, it's like spiritual engagement. Like, it's like, yeah, this is like rubber meets the road about your values or whatever, Mm -hmm. as opposed to that obligation is mom, dad, society, neighbors, the congregation for this pastor, whatever it is like you don't get to. And that's actually, I actually frame everything that way. I, I am. So I'm a Christian and mm-hmm. I have this, there's a book written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Ethics. And, and I probably will misstate this exactly, but my understanding of the way he does ethics in the end, the answer was live like God's watching. Basically it's that simple. So like, and, and cause this is a dude that tried to kill Hitler during the Holocaust. He was part of the, yeah, he was a double agent with the Nazis and he, he made several attempts on Hitler's life, but didn't, but believed it was wrong to kill people. And he was like, yeah, it's sin, but responsibility is bigger than purity. So like I ha- I'm compelled to do this thing or try to do this thing anyway. And this book on ethics is him trying to work these things out. But in some sense, he like lays out something like playing for an audience of one is the best way I could say it. Like you have a value that's that you, that you answer to. And in the end, like, I don't care what you think or what you think or what you think, like there's one if you use the image of God, there's one that I care about what they have to say about me. Or if you're not a spiritual, if you're not a religious person or you don't believe in a God, that's that internal conscience voice. It's the, it's the same thing. Why every culture we frame it different, but it's like something's calling something. There's some design to this. We, we see something like that. Okay. So that was a really good answer to me. And the answer to your dad, it's really beautiful because what he's asking, it's like the, the archetype way of saying it's the fear. It's the thing you were hedging against. You were asking the same question all along the way, right? Going, this is what, why you would be Dharma congruent because, well, what if I lose everything? Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't put all my chips in. I have to hedge my bets. And so let's use that to circle back to this where I, I want to know, like, when you're in those places where you're hedging your bets and cause you're at a place now where you can answer confidently, like what is there to lose? So what, this is what I believe. And you're willing to take those steps. Mm-hmm. And at some sense, it means you're willing to bet 
your house and your car and maybe your husband and whatever. It's like, <laughs> I can put it all on the, on, on the table and bet these things because I believe this is what's right and good and best. Um, so at, at, at least that's risk and it, and it could be sacrifice, right? Like, and I just, I, I don't know. I want you to kind of like speak to it. Cause this is so familiar to probably everybody listening. We all have these things, these steps we know we should take in relationships. We should say something we're scared to say. Uh, yeah. We don't want to risk our relationships. So we don't have them because we're not honest with each other. Mm-hmm. We miss opportunities because we don't put our hand up or step out. We don't speak up. We let injustice go by because we don't say anything like at every turn. This is the battle mm-hmm. to take responsibility and action in the world. And the thing that I feel like if there's a question that the devil is asking us at every turn to keep us from acting good in the world, it's, but what if you lose everything? Right. It is. It is the fundamental. It's the articulation of the fundamental question of fear. Mm. Right. And I think you have to get really comfortable with the idea that you believe in yourself Mm -hmm. and and, and in whatever sense, if you're religious for me, it's, it's um, Gus, God, universe, spirit. So mm-hmm. then me and Gus, we're going to make it. Right? <laughs> and he's going to make sure that I'm okay. Mm-hmm. As long as I do the best I can do to love other people, right? Just, just, just give gratitude and love and follow that. And then, and just don't let fear be the driver. It doesn't mean it doesn't pop up. I, it's not like those questions don't give me pause. It's not like I don't think like, oh my gosh, can I, can I just up and quit my job and, and, you know, live on X, Y, Z money or live on my savings or whatever. But it, it is, I'm not going to give up on something that continues to be there, right? Like if something comes in to my, window lens whatever my my um what's the car windshield something comes across my windshield right and i see it and i think about it for a second and i'm not really sure about it and so i just keep driving but if a mile down the road it comes back and another mile down the road it comes back and it comes back i have to stop yeah and think about why is this keep happening and how do i need to interact with this right and there's a great um when i was going through yoga teacher training there was a great um a teacher who talked about fear and I'm not sure if she quoted a book or, or what only the concept resonated with me but she talked about sitting with fear like it's a person mm-hmm. and looking it right in the eye and just saying we're going to sit here until we know each other are comfortable with, with each other and we walk out of this room together and there's something really powerful about saying we love like as a society right it's so well, uh, from, for a lot of us, not for everyone, but for a lot of us, it's easy to say, I'm scared of that. I'm just going to like walk away. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to deal. And, and to your point, that's reality too. It's I'm scared of the homeless person on the street. I'm just going to look the other way and walk. I'm scared of the injustice that might be, that might be happening and that I'm a, so I'm just going to turn, turn away from it because that's right. it's not forcing me to look at it. But when you force yourself to look at whatever the thing is that is, causing you fear or causing you some sort of negative reaction and you sit in the room with it and you get really comfortable you realize that you have much more power over it than it has over you by avoiding it you're giving it all the power giving it all your energy right you're you're letting it take up space in your very limited parking garage of your soul yep Yep. (laughs) so 
Man. I, I think that's the thing. Like, it's not that, it's not that there's not still fear. It's that you're willing to get in the room with it and, and really decide what parts of it are a warning that I should be listening to from my caveman self, right? The fight or flight self. And what pieces of it are the story that I'm making up in my head that aren't really nearly as bad as what we make up in our head, you know? Would you say that you were temperamentally nervous? Like listening to you now, it's like you've really, you've really dealt with this in a way, but like in hindsight, like how much was fear really, you know, you, we all know people for whom it is paralyzing, right? Paralyzing. Yeah. I think that I have always had a, a moderate relationship with fear. Mm. However, I grew up in a household that was so risk averse. Everything about my upbringing is like highest level red. In, in Colorado, we never have a purple, which is above red. So purple level um, risk aversion, fear adhesion, right? Like always the thought was exactly the conversation I had with my dad at this age, you know, two months ago which is what if you lose everything? What if, what if, what if? And that was always just ingrained. Um, mm. Choosing my major in college was like, what if you must, you, you cannot do that, you must do this because you, how will you earn a living? How will you, you know, like, mm. so I think that I have always felt inside of me. It's part of what was so incongruent with me is that I always knew that I had a little bit um, less risk aversion, well, a lot less risk aversion, even at my, but even at a younger age, I had a little bit more um, or less risk aversion than my own upbringing. But there's this level of obligation, right? Like you want to yeah. please your parents, you want to please, um, you, you love and I, I love and honor my parents. And so I believed that if they were telling me I should be afraid, then something was wrong with me for not being afraid. Yeah. Right. And so I should do what they say because they're, you know, they're, they're my parents and they're successful and they're, you know, they've had their life. And, and it took a long time to figure out that I'm not wrong for having, for being different. Right. Mm. And in fact, that's a good thing. And I yeah. should, I should honor that. And I should grow that and, and, and be, you know, empowered by that. Well, it's funny too. And, and the differences in us temperamentally is valuable. Like, so my wife is, pretty well risk averse is an understatement and and prone to anxiety and naturally afraid and in that way has to be and is impressively courageous all the time things that i don't think twice about right. she thinks two straight evenings about you know just like just constantly spinning and thinking and yet still acts still does and and i have to recognize like that's heroic and i'm not risk averse. In fact, I, even, even all this COVID precaution stuff, like I'm on board dutifully, but as a temperament, I am so I'm almost precaution adverse. Like I'm like seatbelts and safety goggles and knee pad, like all that stuff. I'm just the worst. I'm the worst at doing something to take <laughs> precaution and right. just temperamentally I'm like, ah, you know, whatever, I, everything's fine. And actually, I am fully convinced that I need someone like her very close to me in my life who's looking for the snakes that we're going to step on, you know, cause I'm yeah. not. And then, and then, I, and then she needs someone like me in her life to say, you know, it's, a, it's okay. We're going to survive this. Like it's, 
we can do this. I've seen you do this before. You know, it's not actually that big a deal. Um, they, I know it, it, like everything looks like a snake isn't a snake necessarily, you know, and, and that diversity, it's funny. It's a part of diversity that you hear people talk about diversity, but that's an element just between brothers and sisters and families yeah. in no ethnic or gender diversity is just, we are very diverse just in, in our temperamental makeups and need each other. Right. It's a really great way to illustrate. And there are times where one's better than the other. Right. If matter of fact, all of the technicians at well-built bikes are more risk averse, more orderly, more neurotic temperamentally, and rightfully so because they're fixing the brakes on your bike and they're detail oriented. And I'm not the guy you want doing that necessarily. Like I'll get it most of the way there and go, it's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> but you want someone slow and attention to detail and maybe worried you're going to die and what you're going to lose if this goes wrong and liabilities real. And, yeah. and I need those people on my team or we'd be shut down because <laughs> I'm not the guy for that. Right. Well, and it's exactly a really, right. it's a really uh, powerful way to understand like where we're, um, where we need each other and, and kind of bring each other along. I think it's really also, it's a power, when you can get really real about who you are, Yeah. Um, it, is, it is like the pinnacle of most powerful and just empowering thing that you can do is understand where your own weaknesses are. Which ones of those can you inch your way forward to in, improving and which one of those do you have to fill in with other people like we need each other no matter what you're doing from you know we i live in a neighborhood now where there's snow this is really weird for a florida girl but like i, I don't want anything to do with it we, well, <laughs> i'm in a low maintenance neighborhood so um on purpose so other people shovel it for us as part of our hoa but okay, okay. but there if it doesn't happen quick enough if they can't get to us quick enough Randy goes out and shovels the snow of our neighbors because they're in their 80s and we're mm -hmm. not going to have them shoveling their own sidewalk to get to their mailbox, right? Like mm -hmm. that's not going to happen. We need each other mm -hmm. in the smallest and the largest of ways. And right. the better you know yourself, the better you know how to, how to fill in a spherical version of yourself with other people yeah. and their talents. That's oh, so good. Yeah, it's a and, and and honestly, a lot of things that we would say, like even even calling something a weakness, it depends on its environment, right? Like there are probably yeah. things where it's, but like even something like being prone to addiction, mm -hmm. that's generally not a good thing until you find that you're addicted to something really constructive, or you you have, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm I'm compulsively active doing good in the world or whatever and really fulfilled in doing that and not interested in doing something else and like it's like these weird ways in which it's like perhaps not in the healthiest of ways but like there are things that even even that we might say are a weakness that in the right places are real assets like like having a low like threat emotional threshold where i'm like i'm pretty okay all the time it's like that's great especially in a place where every story is going to break your heart like not feeling them all is probably going to help you last 10 years or whatever, Exactly. as opposed to just falling apart our first three days or whatever, you know, and that's an right. asset in that environment, but it might not make you the best shoulder to cry on with your best friend or something like that. Like you're right. not the guy we're going to go get a hug from. Um, no, but that's a good point. I, I say this um, in my professional life a lot um, because I, I, in my 
nine to five job, right? I put together teams that I run teams of consultants that do these projects all over the country. And one of my favorite phrases is do not ask a fish to climb a tree. Yeah. You're always going to be disappointed. Right. You put a fish in a tank or an ocean or whatever, they're going to do a great job at being a fish, right? But if you're trying to ask them to climb a tree, every single time they're going to disappoint you and it doesn't make them a bad person. It right. doesn't make them a bad fish, right? And so there's something about making sure that you are expecting the appropriate things from the appropriate people. Like let people give you what they can give you best. Yeah, that's man. And just as you said that the first thing that comes to mind is like the, the tragedy of a, of a school system that is everyone is kind of taught the same in a way that, I mean, oh. it is. And I know so many friends with kids that are like a problem. And I'm like, they're not a problem. They should just drop out and open a stand at the flea market. Like they're a merchant or something else. Like they're not, they're not built for this. Right. And it's wrong to, it's wrong to put this kid in this environment every day and then punish them for not climbing a tree right when they should be out here swimming. And, um, and it is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough reality, but one that I'm, I'm hope I, I love, it's been a real joy for me, the more I come in to kind of get to know myself and why I've really been interested in some of the tools available, like even temperamental tools or personality typologies, mm -hmm. things like that, that just give, they're not like with tons of precision and science, but they give like some basic, you mentioned being type A. It's like, okay, that's a basic breakdown, but it it communicates something. And it's not like we're all the same that are that way, but it, 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 it camps us in a temperament in an arena. We have some things in common and those are helpful heuristics to kind of build with and work with people. And then like, even with my, my nephew, like he was, he's five or six now, but at two years old, I was like, this kid's orderly. Like he puts all his hot wheels facing the same way. And when I go turn one around, he freaks out and puts it back. And like, he's going to be organized and orderly and he's going to like spreadsheets probably like there's a, cause he's not, I'm not orderly. Right. <laughs> and I see that and I'm like, Oh, he's not like me in that way. Like there's diversity, not mm -hmm. that he's young. It's that he wants his cars to face the same way. And I want them crooked, right? you know, <laughs> and it's really crazy to see. And like you were talking about, like, the idea of calling or, or design or all the different ways it's put. And, you know, we have these debates of nature and nurture and all these things, but there are some very real things in us where you're like, there's something you just start with. And then mom and dad can go, but yeah, but there's danger around every corner. And what if you lose everything? And what if you lose everything? And what, and that, and that matters too, mm -hmm. right? Culturally, um, we'll, we'll embrace those things. Okay. Let me take a hard turn here. So I, uh, Maybe this is a good transition. I don't know. You mentioned before, like a couple times, restrictions on the nonprofit sector, mm -hmm. and that being related to your interest in social enterprise. And you taught social enterprise classes at UT. You, I, I attended a Seed Spot weekend that you led. You've done a lot of stuff in social entrepreneurship and enterprise space. Now you're working with humanity. Um, I'm, I'm. So this is. I want to talk about social enterprise. I want to hear your own understanding of that, whatever, but also just like, let's begin with that comment about restrictions in the nonprofit space and why that kind of moved your attention into social enterprise. And then maybe let's just pick up from there and, and t tell us about social enterprise. What is that? Why do you love that? Why is that interesting? Sure. So 
let's see. I, I'm not sure exactly what year I watched this TED Talk. Um, and I couldn't even begin to tell you what year the TED Talk was given. I think the TED Talk was given in um, 2009. And I think I watched it in 2012 or 13, but I could be totally off. But Dan Pilata, Loda, does a TED Talk where he talks, where he really like, when I saw it the first time, I watched it three times in a row, back to back to back, because it blew my mind so Is this much. the author of Uncharitable? I believe so. Go on, know. go on. I'll know as I you tell about the TED Talk. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, but he has written a number of books, so it, it's it's likely. Okay. But he, um, he ran a very large, 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 um, multi-million dollar nonprofit, and they they raised a, a huge amount of money, but he also had this relationship with overhead, right? Where mm. they took out a lot of advertising. Um, and so he he and he ended up getting fired. And actually they had to cl they closed the it, the bad press ended up closing down his nonprofit because um, it was it was so demonized, this idea of overhead when really he gives this example. It's like, who cares? about the bake sale with zero overhead that made $77. Um, so what if we spent 40% overhead to raise $77 million? Because it takes money to advertise, to get people involved, to give people an experience they want to come and give their time and their money to, right? And so who cares if the impact is bigger if we had to spend money to, to basically make money? But in yep. the but it's demonized in the nonprofit sector. Yep. And it really resonated with me because I had been doing nonprofit consulting at that point for a couple of years and um, working with these boards, these nonprofit boards that just had in my mind, this really archaic mindset, which is you shouldn't pay people well, you shouldn't spend money on things like advertising or experiences or any of that. You just go out and you beg for money and you and you bring money in and, and you live on zero. And it's just, it's so, it, it's so um, crazy because if you think about something like Amazon, Amazon didn't make money for six years. Right. And now it is like one of the most profitable com companies in the nation, right, in the world. And the idea a nonprofit would never survive if they didn't give to constituents for six years, right? Like people would just stop giving and shut them down, right? So why do we give leverage or give um, leniency to a for-profit endeavor that is just going to, you know, make our life easier, maybe, but not necessarily give to the world. But the the people who are really passionate want to give to the world get no leniency, yep. and it just really resonated with me. And and I started thinking about business for good. And when I think about social enterprise, there's a lot of definitions out there that are very restrictive, right? And I I tend to couch social enterprise into a, a bigger bubble. It has nuances, but I believe that business for good true business for good is a social enterprise. So that can be the 111 model of Salesforce, which is a for-profit company that has this, um, do you know about the 111 model? No. Mm -mm. So they give their employees 1% of their time to give to their communities, paid time. They give 1% of their revenue to um, charitable causes. To, they donate 1% of their revenue. And then they uh, they give 1% of equity to community, uh, I'm not exactly sure how the equity works. They give away 1% of their equity to um, like communal, communal, global communal causes. So the equity makes money, the direct donation makes money and the people are allowed to give, mm -hmm. right? And they have a whole division of their company. So they're a, a huge corporation for profit, you know, all of these things, but 
they were founded on this one, one, one model, right? And then of course, you know, the famous examples of Tom's and, and mm -hmm. Warby Parker and, and those which have this, you know, a give back model. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with a, a for-profit that is truly mission-driven. I do have problems with impact being a catchphrase um, for companies who don't really make an impact or maybe their work by proxy of it makes an impact, but they wouldn't do the work if it didn't pay them and they don't actually give of anything themselves. I find that to be really inauthentic and part of the buzzword of social impact. Um, are, are we are we are we willing to throw someone under the bus as an example? <laughs> I should not. Okay. All right. <laughs> Curious. Um, but there are some. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for sure. There are some out there um, that that like to use um, you know this idea of of impacting communities um, in a in a way that is um, in, in my opinion just inauthentic. So I think there are. And then of course there's the nonprofits who diversify themselves. And, and I think sometimes social enterprise has gotten a bad rap because nonprofits have gone outside, they have um, chased a shiny object, for example, right? So there are nonprofits who go after um, kind of a for-profit sidearm that's really outside their comfort zone. So it can be outside because they didn't really staff it properly or didn't really bring in the right expertise. It can be outside their comfort zone because it really wasn't aligned with their mission. And so it becomes this like weird dinosaur that maybe gives them money, but maybe doesn't. Um, and so, and in general, it's just, it's not, it's not harmonious to, to what they're trying to accomplish. So it becomes an awkward. And so those are, unfortunately, just like in business, there's bad businesses and businesses that go awry. Those are social enterprises that are not necessarily fulfilling their purpose and what they could, their potential. Um, and so there's kind of all of these definitions, but I'm just really passionate about the idea that the, that the way to change people's perception of the nonprofit sector is to show, is to have this, what I call the third bubble, right? This, this Venn diagram, this sweet spot of business um, where we give the leniency to do advertising, to make a product, to um, hire business-minded people, to do other things, but, we, but with this a really soul blinder laser point focus on the mission, right? And the mission of, of what um, of what they're trying to accomplish in the world. So it, given that framework, we're talking for-profit, non-profit, this is kind of, now personally, I, I kind of have this sense that, well, let's just use the impact catchphrase business, okay? So the, the, the advertising phenomena that people know of is greenwashing, right? Like we, we, this happened more in eco eco mm -hmm. stuff, but like to go that way. This is, yeah, I'm gonna present ourselves as sustainable. Like we're gonna we're gonna advertise all this good, this impact, this stuff that we're doing, regardless of what we're actually doing, because that's you know purpose marketing. It's what's good. You know, it's what people are buying these days. Whatever. And again, like everything we've been talking about, I feel like there's this idea of like can you interpret that with gratitude or can you be a generous, can you generously interpret that? And I, and I go, well, there could be very, and it probably are very insidious, just dishonest versions of that. But like what, what is encouraging about it to me is that it's a sign of a shifting culture and business has to change because they're realizing we can't just be like, yeah, so what we're like 
flushing all our waste in the in the developing world and so what if we're just you know ending all these you know taking tops off the mountains and do you know just ruining mm-hmm. the planet but you're getting this cheap product or whatever you, they know better mm-hmm. um and for me i i think what that indicates what i like if i have to predict the future right mm-hmm. i go well I don't think that you're going to be able to run a for-profit business like you have historically. And at the very least, you're going to have to do a one, one, one or something like that. Like you have to, and you can greenwash your way for a while, but uh, with, with how obvious and available everything is with all of us with a video camera in our pocket and uh, you know, the, this, this kind of a emerging call out type culture or whatever, it's like, that's not going to last. Right. And also, oh, go beg for money and do some stuff. Go beg for money and do some stuff on the nonprofit side. It's not, it's, it's, I just, like, I know of people that are like, I've over the last 10 years, I've given close to a million dollars to this cause. I just every year faithfully give to this thing and they're always going to come back and need more. But like this, had you taken this amount of money and, and deployed it to really address this issue now there's nothing wrong. I actually admire that. So I'm, I don't want to hear anyone to hear what I'm not saying. I'm a fan of faithful giving to right. something like there's a guy that shares groceries with these people that work on the farm and they need it. It's like, it just costs money and you should just do that. There's a place for charity. Look out for your neighbors, shovel your neighbor's snow, just do it. It's the <laughs> right thing to do. And I don't care if it lasts that way forever till kingdom come. That's fine. However, right nonprofits are not going to continue to be able to move forward and build and do the kinds of things that, uh, you know, Dan Peloto hope to see, like, we want to see real growth, real impact, real engagement. And you're going to need to operate like a business. You're going to need to hire a, probably a CEO. That's going to be, that's going to, you're going to be competing with businesses that can afford to pay that person a quarter million dollars a year because of what they can do. Right. And so you're going to need to pay them substantially enough to keep them. And the only way, and you're not going to fundraise your way through that. You're going to have to build a business. And all of this to me indicates the end of the distinction. Like that's just a tax distinction, right? All it is like I run a business and it happens to have a 501c3 covering because we got it. We're a public charity and, and yet, and so it's like, yeah, that means there's no shareholders and no one's getting rich off this and all of the profit. Like I want to make as much money as we could possibly make. It just goes back into the mission. Right. This is all I'd ever want to do anyway. And I'm not sure I would do it differently. If I had a different tax distinction, it would just make donations challenging because that people want tax right up. Right. So it's a tax structure, but in the end I go, man, business is going to have to exist for good at some level anyway. And so like what I hear you saying, like this thing that I'm passionate about is for me, I go, man, it's inevitable. And, and at some level you're just ahead of the curve, right? Going, yeah, I think business should be done this way. And you know, it's fine for Salesforce to have a model of this or these nonprofits to kind of dip their toe into some, and some of that's done really poorly in both ways. But in the end, like we're going to have to, be good neighbors mm-hmm. as entities that provide value, not just to the people buying from us, but all the stakeholders and neighbors and the people that live in the communities we work in and around us. And I don't know, for me, I actually, I, I almost want to say like, that is at least in my hopeful iteration of this. I'm like, that's just what, that's just how business is going to be done. Like in some, like what's the experiment you're running? I'm like, 
the future of business. This is what we're trying to figure out how businesses are going to work in a decade from now. Yeah. And this is what I, this is really what I hope for. And you know, what's really kind of positive, right? Um, when you see it's, it is personally, you know, super positive to be something like a part of humanity. Humanity Wine Company is the for-profit, Humanity Del Sol is the nonprofit. The for-profit, we want to grow it as big as possible because 50% of our revenues are going back to the nonprofit, period. 50% um, of all revenues go back to the nonprofit. So as, as big as we can grow this wine company is the bigger and more people we can impact with uh, Humanity Del Sol. So there's a direct correlation there, right? But it's also good to see big companies do things that are authentic. So, I mean, in this world where Amazon, we talked about earlier, became the biggest, you know, most profitable one of the one, at least in the world, right? They made a real commitment to say, wow, we're behind the curve on our environmental impact and we can't turn it over in a day, but they hired some really fabulous people who are environmentally, um, who are environmentalists and environmental engineers to figure it out. And they laid out a plan and they're ticking away at this plan, right? Baby steps, ticking away at a plan to get themselves aligned. Yes, we can demonize them and say, well, you sh should have been thinking about that from day one, yeah. but what does that do us, right? Like what we can do is applaud the fact that they've taken yeah. the effort, they've invested the funds, they've created the plan and they're ticking away at, at meeting it. And, and there's a lot to be said for, that going back to something we earlier talked about, it doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? right? Like, like go ahead if you're a company of whatever size and say, what can I do today? Tiny, that, that gives back to the community. And to your point, it is okay if what they do every year is sponsor the softball team of little kids, right? And give mm -hmm. little kids an opportunity to play a sport and learn teamwork and, and, and camaraderie and that kind of thing. But what else can, you know, is there something a little bit bigger that they can do, a little bit more longer term or more broader impact or, or you know, like it's it's also okay to think like, we don't have to do it exactly the way we've done it in the past. Yeah. Um, we can think about new ways to impact the world with what we do. Well, it, this resident, I mean, this actually resembles the conversation earlier, just like we were talking about taking little steps where someone doesn't have to just change their entire life or quit their job or leave their career. They can start making changes to become more congruent. Mm -hmm. and, and I go, well, at some level, a corporation, I mean, it's really, I actually think this is a really interesting thing. The whole corporations are people. Mm -hmm. And, and I like, as like a, that's a legal thing, but I actually think it's true in the sense that they're a personality they take on a personality and that personality in some sense has something like a calling or a vocation, a purpose for existing. And some of those are absolutely psychotic and should be locked in prison, right? Or taken out. And some of them are really good neighbors that were super happy are here and like glad this persona was called into being. And right. some of them are in the middle of something like a identity crisis or a spiritual journey. Like, okay, we're ticking away at becoming a better version of ourselves, just like us as individuals. Absolutely. And, and it's like the same conversation. You're like, yeah, you're not going to be that tomorrow. You're not going to go run a marathon. Just take a picture of what you're eating, but like begin in that way. And I'm like, Oh, interestingly enough, there's a corporate application of everything that you're talking about at the personal level, because yeah. well, corporations are personal yeah. personas, right? Yeah. That's exactly right. And those personas 
need to be redeemed, frankly, like led to the, to the light, like, so that we can, so that we can see them be the best versions of what they can be. And perhaps there is more purpose for their existence than the widget they make and sell or whatever. And, and something like the individuals you talk to that feel unfulfilled in their work, but it makes money or they're a success. It's like businesses can be a success, but still be feel empty and, you know, inside, like on the whole and go, perhaps we're missing our calling or we're Dharma adjacent. Is that how, that's how we say it? Yeah. 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 So maybe you got a, maybe you got a, another iteration, a part two of your book. That'll be like for, for the corporate, the corporate version or whatever. Now this is, um, this is, this is really good. So I, okay. Can you give me a couple examples of so, social enterprises that you're just like, what are your, like, like some like heroic things that you've seen or, or ingenious creative ideas that you've seen applied like in real life mm -hmm. um, that for those listening that are like, this is a new idea to me. I don't, I don't know a lot of these, like, are there businesses that I've heard of or the things out there and it doesn't, no one needs to have heard of it. Just, I'd love to hear about some of your, some of your favorites, some of the things that you've seen. Yeah, so so I, I just recently had a, a, a couple of really fun conversations with an organization. They're actually a nonprofit, but there's this, it's a they're really at the cusp of of potentially becoming a social enterprise. And so that's some of the conversations I was having with them. Um, there's a a nonprofit called AI Education Project. And their mission is to bring is to normalize artificial intelligence education, right? So we think about AI in this computer science um, kind of techie kind of way, right? And what happens um, from an education standpoint is that pigeonholes who learns, who is interested in that line of education and who thinks they can use it, right? Um, statistics show us that females and underserved populations tend to not go into the sciences as much, whether they feel dissuaded or if they feel underprepared or, um, you know, whatever the reason, there's lots of different psychological um, mm -hmm. behavioral type reasons for it. But those, if you couch AI in that manner, you're limiting those who then get educated on it. And by proxy of that, you're limiting the future of AI. One of the things, if you've watched um, the documentary Social Dilemma, which yep. I can say watch or don't watch um, because it, it definitely makes you think, but it makes the point, which I thought was really valuable to say everything about social media and the AI around social media was built by 20 and 30 something white males, right? Everything about it. So that's one version of the world, right? That is then affecting a whole lot of people in a whole lot of versions of a whole lot of worlds, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so the idea about the AI education project is to normalize it in the sense of like, we use AI in fashion design, we use AI in HR and how we select people for jobs. We use HR, I mean, we use it in real estate, right? Like AI is everywhere. Yeah. And if you start to see it as something that's a foundational piece that we should, that all children should understand it. And, and I say children, but at minimum high schoolers, if not middle schoolers should have a basic understanding of AI. Um, then you're more likely to, you these students are more likely to go out in the world and use those tools, that foundation to think about it in their worldview, 
right? So to think about it as it affects whatever industry they end up going into, right? Instead of just couching it as technology and, and computer science, and I don't, I don't do that, so therefore I don't have to understand it. And so we're opening up these doors to this idea. So right now they're a nonprofit who just wants to give away the curriculum. They have a basic curriculum and they want to get into schools. They have a, a very ambitious mission to get it in front of 100,000 students um, and really like get it out there. But one of the things that I talked to them about was what about, um, and they're, in, they're, they're doing traditional fundraising, right? But what about creating a social enterprise that teaches AI to adults? We've missed it, right? Like yeah. I don't really understand AI. What yeah, that's what I was thinking me? the whole time. Right. I'll pay you if you develop a great curriculum. I will pay to take that course. You use that money to get that curriculum in front of students, right? Like that's a social enterprise model that um, opens doors, right? But it benefits me too. It's just like, um, it, you know, it's, it's very similar to a give back model, the Bombas sock model, right? Like I love their socks. I think they're the greatest socks ever. I want to buy the socks for me. I love that they also give socks away, right? Like that's, that makes me happy. But yeah. like, so I will take your AI course because I need to know more about it and, and want to use it in the way that I interact with my own world. And then you can use that, those, those funds to go and, and put, so that's kind of one that I think is, is burgeoning. It's not, it's not, um, it's not a success story yet. It's a burgeoning one, but it's what, that's, that's, awesome. that's what I see when I look at, um, not all nonprofits, obviously some are very, um, kind of, uh, have that very entrenched model that they, that they have um, either been around for a long time or they've attached themselves to, but there's a lot of innovation happening, even in the nonprofit sector, that if we flipped it on, it, flipped it on its head and like take advantage of those opportunities, we can start to think about the funding source differently. Yep. The way that they fund themselves. Hmm. Any other big favorites? Oh gosh. Like those are the ones I've been working with most closely. Um, no, but like, you don't have to know them even. So like, like I'm a, like you, I think you know that I'm a big fan of homeboy industries, right? Yes. Um, yes. Now I think they have a hugely expensive model. That's going to be hugely dependent on fundraising, but it does create jobs. It is a cool kind of hybrid. They run a ton of businesses and, and, and like, not even necessarily that it's like the, the best example of social enterprise or anything as much as like, to me, it's one of the best examples of business built as family mm -hmm. and, and doing that among people that really desperately need family as a way to like uh, deviate them out of gang life and incarceration. And, and I'm just in love with them and the spirit, like the spirit of the persona that is homeboy industries, that is a beautiful family and community. So mm -hmm. like, that's an example for me. I've been there once to tour it and I've seen the guy speak a few times, but like, I don't know any, I don't know them or interact with them at all. You know, it's just from afar. I'm like a fanboy of yeah. homeboy industries. Yeah. Well, I have one similar to that and this is a for-profit company, but they're just, good. they're doing a lot of good. Um, I think in a, an area that's really needed and I, and I don't know their philanthropic, I know their mission, Yep. which resonates. I don't know about their philanthropic, but, but Elevest is a um, female run, female targeted um, investment company. Hmm. Um, and that is a world, you know, the world of, there is so, so, so much research about how far behind women are in the workforce. And it's not just about the pay gap, right? It's not just about what, what the salaries that show up in our bank accounts are. It's really also about 
um, our level of comfort and knowledge in investing, our level of giving back to the family or to the community above and beyond what, what you know, typically males give or whatever. And so there's this additional gap, wage, I mean, wealth gap that is even beyond the pay gap that exists, right? And mm -hmm. it's even more pronounced in um, untapped, I mean, um, underserved communities, right? Yep. So so the Latinx and, and African-American community feels that even more powerfully than, than just the female uh, gaps. For so sure. their, their mission as a company is to bridge that gap. And so they have a really low cost membership program that gets you access to all kind of information. They have all these like really high tech, um, I, I say high tech, user friendly, they have a user friendly app that helps you set goals, that helps, that gives you free information, newsletters, um, webinars, uh, coaching, like all of these things that you can engage in. Um, with the real purpose of like, let's bring this, let's get this out of this cloud of fear, right? That, which is really back to a lot of what we're talking about, right? Like things that we fear, we tend to either put off or shy away from, right? But if yeah. you can get it to, if you can re-articulate things in a way that people feel connected to them, it breaks down all of those barriers and it allows people to start to engage. And so this, again, this me fangirling this company started from a total place of personal. Um, I, you know, I'm midway through my career. I need, I'm very passionate about doing the right things with investments and retirement. I know, well, I know a lot more now, but, but I knew zero, right? I had this person who was very nice, white male, Financial advisor, very nice. I asked him questions, didn't really know the answers. Um, would would say, I'll get you and would get me something, but like couldn't really break down anything. Couldn't articulate it in a way I understood. I couldn't, you know, it was just like, okay, my, I'm going to just trust you with my money. But this is a big thing. It's a future, right? And and women tend to outlive men. So my husband for, you know, I might outlive him by 10 years. And, you know, I've got to know this stuff. I can't push this off on someone else. I have to own this. And I, I saw a billboard at some point in some city where I was traveling that advertised LFS and it just said kind of for women by women. And I mm. thought, I gotta know more. And I Googled mm -hmm. it on the train that day. I was in a city with a train, Googled it on the train and started just fangirling. And I've been following them ever since. And I love what they put out. I love the, the way that they normalize the information, the way that they do outreach, um, the way that they're passionate when um, the social, uh, justice issues arose. They were very outspoken about them. They said, this is our perspective. We understand not everyone's going to agree with us, but we we strongly, you know, believe in, in this and that, whatever. And I, I liked, I love people who are not afraid to take a stand. They could have lost some, some customers over it, Yeah, but they weren't afraid to say, these are our values and we stand by them. And maybe there's another company for you if you can't respect us for feeling this way right and so I good. there's just so so I, that's my my fangirl company for a mission-driven solidly mission-driven company well I I think this is all really helpful and back to like for those listening you know several points she had said like well it's not all or nothing and I think with business I think even especially when we're young and we're trying to figure out like what, you know, there's this dichotomy between the nonprofit and for-profit sector. I'm either going to be a poor person that loves yeah. poor people 
and does what's right in the world, but can't ever get my own place. Uh, or I'm going to be a, a shark businessman, Wolf of Wall Street type that just cares about the almighty dollar and will sacrifice whatever it takes to make that happen and have no good relationships or family life or whatever. And the reality of these businesses and these examples, I think what is that it's not all or nothing that we can build businesses that do good in the world. And Oh, by the way, it think it seems that it works out better than both of those other examples. Right. We don't lose our soul in the process, but we also don't, um, stay in obscurity and i mean i have no problem with faithful life in obscurity like the kind of mother Teresa's of the world it's like right. it's still calcutta you didn't yeah. transform anything and yet well done right like just long faithful service yeah. in obscurity i'm like that's that is beautiful and the world needs models of that so if you're gonna opt for one of the extremes i would say i would say go in on the on the nonprofit statehood side or whatever yeah. but like it isn't necessary to, to think so black and white, so all or nothing uh, about our options in the world and the things that we can do. And I'm, I'm just, I'm really grateful for you and the stories you've been able to tell. Um, I know we don't have a lot of time left and I wanted to just give you some space um, to talk. Well, one, before we do, I want to give you some space just to point people to things. So if there's things you want to plug or promote or whatever, just like how to follow up with you or get in touch with you or find your book or when it's coming out, whatever. Sure. Uh, but real quick, before you do that, I just want to highlight like something, a couple stories you told. So you're like, you heard a podcast. Was it Maria on the podcast? And you're like, so I, I got on a DM and I messaged her and now you're working with humanity. And we're, even this conversation was prompted by that happening. You sent that message and you work with them. Then you okay. sent me some wine and now I'm sitting here, by the way, it's awesome. Oh, good, good. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and doing that. And then even when you saw the, is it Elevest? Is that how you say that? Elevest. Yeah. And you saw a billboard and you're like immediately Googling it and following up and learning about them. Um, there's something I just want to highlight about your personality. That's like, you go, you get after it. Like when you see, when you're interested in something like so many of us won't send that first message, even on this podcast, I recently had on, and there's two episodes with a guy named Jerome Miller. Um, Jerome Miller is an author of what I think is the most important book I've ever read, which is called the way of suffering. And years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I emailed him. I Googled him and found him and sent him an email, just thanking him for the book. Like, I don't know. I just, it's, the best thing I've ever read. I, I want to read it every year. And we corresponded a little bit. He was sweet, sweet old dude. And was like, Hey, whatever. But then when I started the podcast um, and this conversation around work, I circled back to that book and I opened up and I, I didn't know this, but the first chapter of it jumps off going, he's like using work in the negative as a way of like trying to avoid um, the unexpected and work is a way to structure your whole life that nothing unexpected ever happens. And it gives yeah. a very negative view of work. And I got really upset and I was like, I get what he's doing, but I don't remember this standing out this way. I'm going to hit him up and see if he'll talk to me about it on the show. And so we ended up doing two, three hour podcasts together on here. And, and it, and it happened very similarly. Like I'm going to message this dude and just see, like, just ask, would you want to do this? And you hit up Maria and then you, you know, look up LFS and I imagine there's a million other examples of that. And I just want to like highlight that as a real like asset in your personality. And then for those listening, like when, when these, when you feel prompted by things, like 
sink your teeth in, take it, take a risk, uh, yeah. send someone a message. What's the worst that's going to happen? She doesn't respond or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's so important for us to follow our curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. And it's okay when that leads to a little cul-de-sac with some trees yep. and you turn around and you go back and it's like, okay, yep. that was all. But sometimes they lead to these amazing roads that are mm. just years later. I mean, um, to be perfectly honest, Seed Spot was exactly the same, yeah. which is one of the ways we got connected, right? And yep. And now it's years later and we're sitting here talking about these things, right? Yep. I heard about Seed Spot. I called them up. I said, I heard you're doing these weekend things. I want to do one, you know, whatever. It's the same thing. And this is years later and it's still paying dividends in the tiniest, most joyful ways. So That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I just, I really, I encourage people to do a couple of things in life. And one of them is follow your curiosity and mm. be okay if it leads nowhere and be open if it leads everywhere. I love it. So where can people find you? What, what would you like to, is there anything you want to ask of people? Yeah. I mean, I would love, love, love if people um, would, would follow me. Cause I'll have all of my stuff. Um, I, I have a Facebook and an Instagram. Instagram is in pursuit Mel Sue. <laughs> Cause my middle name is Melanie Sue. Um, in pursuit, I N P U R S U I T Mel Sue. And then um I also have a, a Facebook page called Becoming Congruent. Uh, my book is called Incongruent, uh, My Misaligned Life and the Trek to Becoming Congruent. And it, uh, it should come out October 1, fingers crossed. Awesome. Um, so it's still a little bit down the way, but I'm already starting to talk about it and to do, I have some videos. Who's um, publishing? My website is melaniehicks.org, really easy. Me melaniehicks.org? Yep. So, and Wait, I who's, pu who's publishing the book? Balboa Press. Awesome. So they're a they're a spinoff for small first time authors um, off of Hay um, Hay House. Okay. Which is a lot of um, kind of uh, spiritual and and self development books Hay House does, and then Balboa is their spinoff for first time authors. So and I I also I publish for Forbes um, periodically. I don't I don't have a real regular schedule, but about once a month I put out a Forbes article, so you can find those. Yeah, I, I, I clicked on that earlier. I was like, you have quite a few of them in there now. I do. I do. Yeah, I try awesome. to do about one a month. I don't actually have an, a strict schedule, but I try to do one a month and just kind of follow some passion. They're all, they're all focused around business and particularly around sales because my, um, my lead is, is in a sales committee. Uh, I, I, development council. I still have, I don't know what the publication was, but I still have the little booklet that you wrote uh, an article about what bikes in hanging up in the bike shop. Oh yay! Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. yeah. That's the district, the district magazine. The district, that's it, that's it. Yep. I I don't see the cover because it's open. It's like yeah, tacked okay. up on the wall, open. I'm like, I don't know what the cover says. It's <laughs> okay. the district. That's it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. So yeah, those are all the ways that you can find me. Like I said, social media and my website's just myname.org. So. Awesome. <laughs> and then and then if they want to order some wine. Yes, please visit us at humanitywineco.com. Um, we have a shop where you can order individual bottles or packages of bottles. And we also have um, the subscription, which is uh, four times a year quarterly. So a box of 12, four times a year, that's a bigger um, ask, but you become part of our kind of exclusive circle at that point as well um, as a regular subscriber. And then uh, we also, like I said, on that same site, you'll see the events where we have our monthly 
um, wine and wisdom is what we call it. Wine nice. And I like that. It's good. Um, and we talk to a, a lot of our um, vineyard owners, our distributors who have social enterprise of their own. And then um, of late, our last one was actually about an artist who um, donated a bunch of his artwork for um, the charity. So we highlighted him and his artwork. So reaching out to other things besides just wine and wisdom, but, or uh, tapping into the wisdom part of it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. God, I love it. I, uh, you are, you are, uh, you are so impressive. I really appreciate you spending some time uh, oh, with me today. Thank you so much and, for having uh, me. This was so much fun. Yeah. I, and, and by the way, maybe off uh, of recording, I would love to just catch up a little more regularly. I miss, I miss your face. It's really good to see you. Yes. It's great to see you as well. And I, I didn't get to ask you any questions about what's happening in the, the well-built world. So I need that offline time to talk more about that too. Yeah. Say when, I mean, I can give you the short right now is just like, it's going great. I, we have finally been able to, so we're three years open now. Um, we just got to the place where it was like, um, well, let's say like completely stable and then like in, and sustaining itself through sales. Um, and then I went ahead and hired more people. Cause I was like, okay, well, you know, one, I needed to get out of the day to day. I was like three years and here's enough. I need to like, get back to actually building out. The <laughs> oh, that scared me. Sorry. What kind of dog you got over there? She's a mini golden doodle. Her bark is way bigger. Than That's that. a little dog. <laughs> I, for those that can't see me, I literally just jumped. Like I was, I thought there was a dog in my office or something. <laughs> um, She's fluffy. Like little. That's so awesome. But yeah, no, the shop's been going good. And actually there was a uh, local um, female, local mechanic, an old friend of mine that I just wanted so badly. And I reach out to her every like few months and be like, well, we still can't really afford you and we can't get you over here. Uh, but it worked out. She just joined the team um, awesome. her, she, ethos wise. She's a perfect fit. She's an old friend. So for me, it's like a reunion when I get to see her now. She's working in the shop now with us on the production side for floor bikes and earn bikes. So the other techs can work on the work orders. Um, I'm, I'm going to, as of like last week, I'm, I'm there a lot less. I mean, it's open right now. I'm doing this with you, you know, um, it, it's, uh, I'm, um, that's new. That's just happening. And we've got some really exciting, um, projects like with the other parts of the well, you know, our kinship food distributions are going well. We just got, we're it, one another local nonprofit is um, we we contracted with and they're going to pay us basically we're they're hiring us to help with some of their goals for for some of the work they're doing around food insecurity because uh, we do a bunch of grocery distributions but rather than like paying us money I was like I want that bus that's in y'all's parking lot so that I can build it out as a mobile grocery store for the kinship like not a store like for not I'm not trying to start a business with that at least not yet but I'm trying to, we run food deliveries and we, you know, for neighborhoods and people in need and COVID really highlighted a lot of the like need for profe Like I always wanted to professionalize it for dignity's sake, which I've, you know, but, mm -hmm. but then even more so food safety standards, cleanliness, some of the, some of the things. And, and, and if I build it outright, that where the side of the bus becomes a grocery store, um, it's all outside rather than having to come into a building or a space. Yeah. And so, and I can get to neighborhoods all over the place. So I, I'm going to be working on that the next couple months. That's like my first project to sink my teeth in as I'm out of the shop more. Uh, but I, I'm it, 
things are going fantastic and super pumped about it. And yeah, we could definitely set up a time and really sink our teeth into some of those, but that's kind of the broadest brushstrokes is like, it's going great. That's awesome. I'm it so really good. is. Well, and, and for all your coaching and help at the early days, uh, I I've been, and, and literally, I think, I think it was like two weeks ago. I had, I built out a little office in my backyard at the house. Cause it, Oh, we got a, we were officing at home during COVID and then it's a tiny house, whatever. So I made this little thing on the, like off a little lean to office off the shed. And I had the, I still have this little seed spot booklet. I, I go to it often actually. And I had it on my desk. I was actively looking at it and I didn't um, complete the roof and that hurricane came and it's now like this soggy mess where I'm like, Oh, I hope this dries out and is still readable. <laughs> so it's, so it's not still soggy, but I have yet to go back and see if I can, if I can still utilize it as I have been. But to this day, um, I use the tools we talked about in there and um, awesome. think about so you a fun. lot. So when you, when you sent this, I was like, this is a great excuse uh, to hit you up and be like, let's catch up. But I, again, I know we got to go. Thank you for your time and uh, just message me. We'll set up a time. Let's do it again soon. All right, let's do it. Thanks so right. much. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye. See you. Hey, real quick before you go, I want to invite you to join the conversation. One of the first comments that was left on one of the first episodes was somebody saying that they wanted to join in the conversation the entire time. And I've heard that from a few of you, and I really want to invite you to do that. So if you go to workethicpodcast.com, there is a link to join the conversation where you can click that link and chime in, uh, maybe answer what success is to you, what's your earliest memory of work, your own experience of, of what triggers flow state or your own understanding of grit, but I want to invite you to join the conversation. I would also like to invite you to help grow this conversation and this podcast and show. So if you would please share, please subscribe, please leave feedback on the show, uh, rate it, uh, comment on socials. And then if you would please, please, please consider supporting, uh, the cost, the expense that this show is becoming, and also, uh, kind of my own work, uh, with the podcast and with the well and well-built bikes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash the work ethic, or there's also a link at workethicpodcast.com. Thank you so much for considering it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for being a part of this conversation in this project.